If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of the letter written to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 2. If you have watched television for some time now, uh, you know of the interviewer Larry King. Uh, he has interviewed uh, thousands of people, uh, maybe even millions in his lifetime. He's arguably the greatest interviewer of all time. He's interviewed the who's who of this world from uh, famous celebrities to uh, powerful political leaders. I think it's safe to say that there's nobody that Larry King has not interviewed. One day, Larry King was asked if he could interview anyone, who would it be? If there's anyone that you could interview from uh, past, present, or future, uh, who would it be? His response may surprise you. He said, Jesus Christ. He said, I would interview Jesus Christ. Now, the follow-up question to King's answer was this. What question would you ask him? If you were to ask, if you were to interview Jesus Christ, uh, what question would you ask Jesus Christ then, Larry? And his response was this. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because the answer to that question would define history. Once again, I would ask him if he was indeed born of a virgin, because the answer to that question would define history. Now, King's answer is quite profound, but also shocking. I mean, King is not a Christian. It shouldn't the cure to heal all diseases uh, define history. Shouldn't that be the defining moment in history? That there was one cure that heals cancer and AIDS and all these various diseases that kill many. Or shouldn't some advanced uh, technological breakthrough define history? Shouldn't that, what, shouldn't that be what's defining uh, the rest of history? According to King, it's neither. It's Jesus Christ. Is Jesus, if Jesus Christ is truly born of a virgin woman... If that is true, then that would define the rest of history. And saints, Larry King is not wrong in his answer. The Dutch, the reformed Dutch theologian Herman Bovink has said, if however Christ is the incarnate word, then the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world. If Jesus is who he says that he is, If he is God in the flesh, then the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world. In other words, when the second person of the Trinity assumed human flesh, the entire history of the world changed. The entire history of the world shifted a bit. When the second person of the blessed triune assumed a true human nature. You see, saints, the virgin birth, the incarnation speaks beyond the fact that a woman 
who's never been intimate with a man bears a child. It speaks beyond that. It speaks beyond the wise men. It speaks beyond the conditions in which Jesus was born. It speaks beyond the historical fact and the historical event itself. But it speaks to the condition of the entire human race. The incarnation speaks to our condition. It says when Adam fell, we fell. And he fell so far down that in order for us to have any chance of reconciliation with God, God himself must intervene. And the virgin birth screams to a curse-bearing, sin-infected, lost world that God truly has intervened. No words can capture this better than the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. You see, saints, the movement from Old to New Testament is a movement from type to anti-type. It's a movement from shadow to substance. It's a movement to, from promise to fulfillment, from darkness to light. That's what the incarnation points to. It points to God being faithful to his promise that he made way back when. In Genesis 3.15, when he said that there will come one from the seed of the woman, that there will be one of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It speaks to our condition, how God must intervene in order for us to be reconciled with God. It's a wonderful thing that we speak of, but also it's a terrible thing, is it not? For the incarnation, the virgin birth is a rebuke to each and every one of us. Because it screams, you cannot save yourself. But God must come in the likeness of man in order for us to be redeemed. And saints, this morning, I want us to consider the greatest event in all of human history, which is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. When the sovereign became a servant, when the one who sits on high, who is majestic, became a man, when God of God became very man of very man. And saints, there are many passages of the scriptures that set forth the glory and wonder of the incarnation. One can turn to Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy of the glorious person and work of the Messiah. One can turn to John 14 or 114 when John pins those glorious words and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And one can turn to our passage this morning. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 where the apostle Paul, he sets forth to his readers the glory and majesty of the person of Christ. You see, saints, in this passage, we have the person of Christ summed up in just five verses we have the deity of Christ put on display. We have the humanity, the incarnation and humiliation put on display. 
And we have the exaltation of Christ put on display. These five verses had been used by theologians throughout the centuries to dash to pieces, error upon error and heresy upon heresy by those who reject the true deity and true humanity of our Savior. And to help us understand the context a little bit, the Apostle Paul, what he's trying to do here in this letter, is he's trying to encourage and strengthen uh, these Christian believers at the church at Philippi. You see, there's much uh, drama and, and things going on at the church at Philippi, both externally, but here in chapter 2, Paul is going to hone in on the internal uh, dealings, the internal dramas that's happening in the church. And he wants to exhort these Christians to have spiritual unity. And the way that they are to have spiritual unity is by looking not to themselves, not looking to a self-help book, not looking to a 10-step program, but to look to Jesus Christ, the supreme example. He's exhorting these Christians to be humble. And there is none other to look to than the one, Jesus Christ, who came from such a high place to such a low place. So if you are able... Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 11. Though we will focus on 6 through 11. The word of God reads, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated, saints. This morning, I have three points that will help us, uh, that will guide us through this glorious Christological passage, and they are, the first is the true deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Number two, the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. And number three, the exaltation of Christ. And I'll be repeating those points as we move along, but number one, the deity of Christ Number two, the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. And number three, the exaltation of Christ. So let's open up these five verses with verse six, in which we see the deity of Christ put on display. Verse six, saints, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Saints, the first thing that we must understand and notice from this passage is the Apostle Paul's clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. It's quite clear that the Apostle Paul is setting forth to his readers and to us that Jesus Christ is truly God. And we see that when he says in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. That's where the deity of Christ is seen. Though he was in the form of God. And saints, when Paul says form of God, he's not saying that Christ is a copy of God. 
We have the tendency in our human, our own language to, to think when we hear form, we think copy or something that's not like the original, something that has, that's of a different substance of the original. That's not the message that the Apostle Paul is bringing to our attention. He's not saying that the Son is like the Father, or better yet, that Christ is like God when he says form of God. But rather, if we were to read the text in the original language, the word form simply means nature or essence. Nature or essence. So if we were to reconstruct the verse, it should read this. Though he was in the essence of God. Though he was in the nature of God. Saints, again, this is a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. Though Christ is in the same nature, the same essence of God. And when we say the deity of Christ, saints, it's important to understand what we mean And what we don't mean when we say the deity of Christ, this is all going to make sense in a bit. But when we say the deity of Christ, let's do a bit of negative theology. What we don't mean is that Jesus Christ is one God in the midst of many gods, that he's not a God, that Christ is not one God among many in a pantheon of deities, that we must reject that Jesus Christ is a God in a line of all other gods, in a line of millions upon millions of gods. There is only one God. When we say that Jesus Christ is God, we don't mean that Christ derives his essence from the Father, meaning that the Father creates the Son, and thereby the Son is true deity. The Son is true, truly divine because he is created by the Father. When we say the deity of Christ, we don't believe what the Mormons believe, that Jesus Christ was once a man and based upon good works and his perfect obedience, he was exalted and elevated himself to divinity. We must reject that notion. We also must reject the notion that when we say Jesus is God, that, that he is of similar substance with the Father, that he is, that he is like the Father, that he is like God, but he's not truly And essentially God, that was the big debate at 325 in Nicaea, was it not? Where you had Arius who came along and said that the the son is homoousios with the father, that he is of, of similar substance with the father. Then you have those of the Orthodox who come along and say, no, that the son is homoousios, that he is of the same substance with the father, that all of what it means to be God, the son possesses. And that's what we mean when we say the deity of Christ. When we say that Jesus Christ is truly divine, what we are saying is Jesus Christ is eternal God. Simple as that. That Jesus Christ is God. When we say the deity of Christ, or to say that Jesus is God, is to echo those words of verse 1 of chapter 1 in that wonderful gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And I especially love the prologue to the gospel of John. Do you not saints that unlike the three other gospels that focus on the earthly ministry of Christ, that focus on the historical narrative of the virgin birth and, and his genealogy. What John does is he pulls back the veil and the curtains 
And he looks at the virgin birth and he looks at Jesus Christ from the perspective of eternity. And he said that this one who came in the flesh is very God of very God. To say that Jesus Christ is God is to mean that Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is God. That there is nothing of the godness of God that lacks in Jesus Christ. All of what God possesses, Jesus Christ possesses. He is simple without parts. He is ase, self-sufficient. He is immutable without change. He is impassable, unable to undergo change in his perfections. And we can name, go down the list and name all of the various perfections of God. And we can affirm what the apostle Paul is saying in verse six, that Jesus Christ is truly God. All of what it means to be God, Jesus Christ is. And saints, yes, we can amen this. Yes, we can affirm this. But we can never, ever forget this. This is to be of theological importance for the rest of our Christian lives. We must be reminded and we must rehearse this truth. As simple as it may be, the ABCs of Christianity, is it not? This truth, as often as we can. Mark Jones has rightly said that Christians who confess that Jesus is God are the best theologians in the world. Think about that. Christians who confess that Jesus is God are the best theologians in the world. Now, why would he say that? Because it is this truth that many Christians get incorrect. You would think that Jesus Christ being truly an essential God is the one truth that many Christians get incorrect. This year, Ligonier Ministries conducted a poll of what Christians believe about their faith. And there were statements that Ligonier uh, gave, which uh, people had to, and not just people, but evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians who go to church on a regular basis. And the statements were, were such, do you believe that, do you believe in the Trinity, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons? And you had to either strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Another question, do you believe uh, that by nature you are a good person? By good works you can, you know, earn a perfect standing before holy God. You'd be surprised at what many have said. But here's one of the statements that was the most lopsided out of all the statements. This question was posed or this statement was posed. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, if we were to take a poll here, I'm quite interested to know if you would strongly affirm or strongly deny that. There is only two ways, but there's only one right answer. Is Jesus Christ the first and created being created by God? Is Jesus the first and created being created by God? Is he created? Was the statement that was proposed. 73% of evangelical, Bible-believing, church-going Christians affirmed that Jesus Christ is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of Christians 
believe that Jesus was once a man or either better yet didn't exist and came about through some heavenly divine ordeal. So 73% of Bible-believing Christians believe that there once was a time when the son was not, as Arius would say, the heretic. 73% of Christians deny the true divinity of Christ, saints, which is sad. This is why, as simple as this may seem, Jesus Christ is God, is of utmost importance for us to know to rehearse, to understand, to affirm, to amen, all of those things. Because there are those people who come to your doors, sharply dressed as they are, who can persuade you to believe that Jesus Christ was once a man, or Jesus Christ is the first and highest being created by God. If we even step outside of Christianity for a second and we look at the various cults and religions in the world from Mormons to, to Messianic Jews to Muslims to Jehovah Witnesses, what is the common denominator? They all deny the true deity of Christ. Each and every one of them. What are we saying in our own lifetime or in our present day and age? That Jesus Christ was just a great man. He was a great moralist who put forth standards for us to follow. But he shouldn't be worshipped as God. Saints, we who believe in the inerrancy, inspiration, and infallibility of the word of God, we can differ on various points of our theology. And we can go to task and have uh, very vigorous debates on what we believe about the Christian faith. But at the very core of what we believe, we must get this right. We cannot budge on this truth. That Jesus Christ is truly God. Jesus says in John 8, 24, I told you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's why affirming the true divinity of Christ is important, because if you do not affirm it, then you will die in your sins. And the interesting thing about this verse is there's no he in the original Greek. So this is an I am statement. Christ is saying, if you don't believe that I am the one who spoke to Moses in Genesis and Exodus 3:14 in the burning bush, if you don't believe that I am he, creator of all, very God of a very God, then you will die in your sins. This is why we must proclaim the true divinity of Christ as often as we can. Rehearse the true divinity of Christ as often as we can because this is important for our salvation. Forget just uh, debating those who reject the true divinity of Christ, but for our own salvation, we must affirm that Christ is truly God. Now let's move on to our second point, which is the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. The Apostle Paul, once again, setting forth that Jesus Christ is truly God. He says in verse 7 and 8, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Saints, what three glorious verses we have set before us, are they not? 
the Apostle Paul, in just three verses, gives us a theological discourse on the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. Again, he's already affirmed that Jesus Christ is truly God. When he says that Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, all of what it means to be God, Jesus Christ is with respect to his divinity. But the Apostle Paul takes us a step further. And he says, the son didn't hold on to his divinity as if he was too good to be human or to become human. And that's the language of verse 6, saints. If you look in your Bible, when it reads, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's focus on that word grasp. And when we consider that word in, in the original Greek, it means a prize or anything to be seized or greatly desired. Something that, that is a prize, something that you must hold on to. And it's used here to speak of the attitude of the Son toward the perfect will and redemptive plan of God the Father. In simple terms, in simple language, the Son didn't cling to his divinity. The Son didn't hold on to his divinity, but rather willingly and voluntarily became human. The eternal Son did not cling to his eternalness as if he was too good to become temporal as if he was too good to become finite. The son assumed what he was not, a true human nature. God became man. Saying this is known as the incarnation, which simply means to take on flesh. The eternal son took on flesh. He assumed a body and reasonable soul. He became what he was not, saints. He assumed all of what it means to be human. Our confession puts it this way, that he assumed all of our essential properties and common infirmities thereof. What that means is this. He got sick. He got tired. He was weary. He was tempted. He laughed. He sneezed. He had to use the restroom. All of those things, what it means to be human, that constitute our humanity, Jesus Christ assumed. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin has probably said it best in the most poetic of ways. When the sun became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another. Namely, God and man simply put in the incarnation, heaven kissed earth. God and man met in the person of Jesus Christ for the first time since the fall. God and man were in perfect union with one another in the God man, Jesus Christ. Christ. The word became flesh and let's take it a step further. He dwelt among us as John tells us. He walked amongst his people. The one who formed the first man Adam from the dust of the ground walks the dust of Jerusalem. The one who was the giver of the law becomes subjected to the law. The one who is the creator of all things becomes like his very own creation. That one saint whom Isaiah speaks of in in Isaiah chapter 6, who's high and lifted up, who the hem of the train fills the entire temple, where the seraphim fly, with two they cover their eyes, with two they cover their feet, they sing, holy, holy, holy. This one becomes like his creation. Saints, if you don't under, if you don't 
consider this when we read verse 6. Consider it now that when we read verses like this, we are to stop at our tracks. We, we are to worship our Christ in light of what's being said. This is worthy of psalm singing, of hymn singing. This is worthy of deep prayer. This is worthy of all of those things that lift up our glorious Christ. This is the truth that makes the incarnation so glorious. It makes our salvation in Christ that much weightier. That though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold on to what he had. He had every reason to do so, did he not, saints? The eternal son had every reason to put his own rights first. No, Father, you become flesh. No, Spirit, you become flesh. Although there is an ontological reasoning why the second person of the Trinity had become flesh. If you want to know about that, ask me after. But the Son didn't cling to his true divinity as if he was too good to become human, but rather he veiled his glory. And we move on and we see the great apostle advancing the doctrine of the incarnation. In verse 7 it reads, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And saints, when we read, but emptied himself, there's much debate over this word kenosis. What does this mean? The eternal son emptied himself. Well, what it doesn't mean is this, that God stopped being God. That's what we are not to think when we think of the eternal son assuming what he was not. That he stopped being truly God. God cannot stop being God, saints. And if there's any encouragement that you can take from this lesson, from this sermon, it's this, that God cannot and will never stop being God. God cannot take on, take off certain divine perfections that many think that when the eternal son took on flesh that he left all of his divine perfections at the throne of grace only to pick them back up when he ascended to the right hand of the father. That's not what that means. We want to think that verse seven is speaking of the son setting aside any of his deity in order for him to become human, but rather the emptying himself simply is the assumption of a human nature while existing in the form of God. The emptying himself is the son taking on a true and complete human nature while remaining true and complete God. Let me give you an analogy. Husbands, when you take out the trash for your wives, and I hope you do that regularly, when you take out the trash for your wives, what are you doing? You are divesting, you are emptying the trash can of its trash. So, when you empty something, what are you doing essentially? The thing that's being emptied, it's losing something. When you empty out something, you lose something. But that's not how we are to think when we think of the eternal son emptying himself. It's not by any loss, but it's by addition. The eternal son adds to himself true humanity while remaining truly divine. I know that's a mystery. And I know that's incomprehensible. 
But we can apprehend and we can adore what Christ has done on our behalf. John Owen says at this point, it is not said that he ceased to be in the form of God, but continually to be so, he took upon him the form of a servant in our nature. And here's important to note, he became what he was not, but he ceased not to be what he was. He became what he was not without ever ceasing to be who he was. This, saints, is what we need to get correct. If we are to have any proper Christology, that in the incarnation, the eternal son did not stop being the eternal son. Let me give you an example. When Christ is on the cross, when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the same time, he's upholding and he's governing all of the universe by the word of his power. At the very same moment when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's upholding this entire universe by the word of his power. The eternal son remained what he was, truly and essentially God. He is forever the God man. One person with two natures. These two natures never mix. They're never confused. They're never compounded. The, son, the, uh, the human nature of Christ doesn't become divine, and the, the divine nature of Christ doesn't become human. They remain distinct, but never separated from each other. One Christ with two natures. Let's move on. Notice the status in which the Son became human, incarnate. As if becoming incarnate wasn't enough. As if taking on flesh wasn't enough. Again, verse 7 says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Christ, who by nature and status was God, made himself nothing when he assumed flesh. As if the condescension of Christ, of the eternal Son, wasn't enough. Notice the status in which he assumed a servant a bondservant, or a slave. In the incarnation, the son wasn't born into a family of wealth and riches, saints. Though he was a king, intrinsically, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The son wasn't born into an earthly royal family. He didn't take the form of an heir to an earthly throne, but rather he took to the form of a servant. What great condescension by our God. In fact, it's always striking to me when we read in the Gospel of John that when Christ is telling his disciples that he must go, he says, my peace I leave with you. And Jonathan Edwards makes a wonderful observation. He says, where you have people in this world who leave earthly wills to their children. They leave a lavish of riches. The son of man had nowhere to lie his head, but he left them his peace. The greatest somebody that ever was, saints, was willing to become the greatest nobody that ever was. What glorious humility and condescension by our Lord. Christ says in Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve 
and give his life as a ransom for many. This one who possessed all of the heavenly riches lived his life as a servant, lived his life as a slave. He took the form of one whom men hid their faces from. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as Isaiah 53 tells us. In Luke 9, one asks Christ, I will follow you wherever you go. Christ says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He became low. And the most striking thing about all of this is this. He became lower than we would have ever went. How do I know that? Because I never would have went that low. My pride wouldn't have let me become this low in order to save those who despised me, who rejected me, who hated me. What humility and glorious condescension by our Lord. John Gill has rightly said this. Put these two phrases together, the form of God and the form of a servant, and admire the amazing stoop. That's the practical application of this. Take these four, these two phrases that he is truly God and he is truly man and admire the amazing condescension by our eternal son, by the eternal son, Jesus Christ. Saints, when we read such glorious verses, we are to take pause and meditate on our Christ. We are to stop at our tracks and we are to consider what's being said. As Stephen Charnock has eloquently put it, what a wonder. That two natures, infinitely distinct, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an intimate joy in the deity, and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in the cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men on earth and angels in heaven. Even angels in heaven astonish at the truth of the incarnation. That the impassable, that the, that the impassable became passable. That the infinite became finite. That the one who was creator of all became a creature without ceasing to be all that he ever was. The sun comes down from heaven, saints, and touches our human infirmities and like When we affirm the deity of Christ, we are to amen it. We are to know it. But we can never be in awe and wonder of it. In the incarnation, we must affirm all of the biblical witness of the incarnation. And what those have said throughout the years, those orthodox have said throughout the years concerning the incarnation. And we can fill our minds up with all of the various theological language. But if we lose for one second the awe and wonder of the incarnation, then what have we gained? Then what have we actually learned? Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you haven't noticed by now, the apostle Paul is doing a glorious thing. In verse 6, saints, he, we begin, remember, at the highest of heavens. 
And then as we come to verse 8, we see how low the eternal son has stooped for our salvation. We began high and now look where we have gone. That even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here the apostle Paul takes us deeper into the mystery of the incarnation. And he highlights the humiliation of Christ. And when we say the humiliation of Christ, what do we mean when we say that? It's simply this. It's Christ being placed under the law. It's him living as man. It's the suffering. It's his death. It's the incarnation. The humiliation of Christ didn't begin at his passion. It didn't begin at Gethsemane. It began at conception. It began when the Holy Spirit covered and and came over the womb of Mary as of a cloud to make her womb fertile in order for her to conceive the person of Christ. The entirety of Christ's life was his humiliation. But notice the attitude in which Christ had during this humiliation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. The attitude in which Christ had during the entirety of his life was one of humility. In eternity past, the son wasn't forced to become human. We aren't to think that the three persons threw straws and it is Christ who, who drew the, the, the least of the straws and by that he became human. He became took on flesh. He was not outvoted by the Father and the Spirit. He voluntarily and willingly became and humbly became flesh. And when the incarnation, and when the incarnation, when the when Jesus Christ, when the eternal Son became flesh, in his lifetime, what does he do? He lives a life that is in total obedience to the Father's will, relying solely on the Holy Spirit that was given to him without measure. We read in the Gospels time and time again, Christ saying, I came not down not to do my own will, but I've come down to do the will of my father. Throughout his life, the son humbly did all that was commanded to him by the father in eternity past. And even in the last hours of his night of his life in Gethsemane, when we read in Luke twenty two forty two, that father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ was obedient to God, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He remained in a state of, humilia- of humiliation. He remained humble to his God. But also our Christ remained humble. He lived a life of humility toward man. It wasn't just toward God, but it was toward his fellow man. He obeyed his parents. He worked as a carpenter. He conversed with sinners. He washed his disciples' feet. He did not once boast in his divine origins, but... Rather, he lived a life of meekness and humility. And that humility of Christ climaxed in his death. His death was the ultimate sign of his humility. Was it not, saints? For his death was not a death that was done in private. He wasn't taken to the back room and executed where only a handful of people could see. Our death, the Christ's death was made a spectacle. His death was made public. 
Christ's death was a humiliating death. Before the entire world, he was beaten and spit on and mocked. It was a death that was reserved just for the vilest and worst of criminals. A crown of thorn oppressed upon his temple and a sign above his cross saying, King of the Jews. But our Lord never complained. Our Lord never turned back, but he remained in a state of humiliation. He remained humble even to the point of death. We are to talk frequently about the death of Christ, saints, are we not? One theologian has said, it is an awful thing to talk about the death of Christ. It's a terrible thing to talk about the death of Christ. But it's a terrible thing not to talk about the death of Christ. It's a terrible thing not to consider how low the eternal son went in order for us to be reconciled to God. Our Lord remained in a state of humiliation and remained humble even to the point of death. And saints, if there's one application we can take from this, it's simply this. What a savior we have in Jesus Christ. What a savior we have in Jesus Christ. We are to admire this one and not the admire that we give, that we reserve for those celebrities that we like or those athletes that we adore. But an admire that moves from all of that earthly admiring and earthly uh, looking upon and saying, man, I, I, I agree with that. I like that. But that moves to the heavenly realm that moves you to obedience to Christ that moves you to total submission to the law of God. That's the admirer that we are to have when we are to consider our Christ. Thomas Watson has said wonderfully, Christ took our flesh that he might make the human nature appear lovely to God and the divine nature lovely to man. The divine nature that we so desperately hated God, that we so desperately rejected, that we love because Jesus Christ has took on the form of a servant. He took on the likeness of men to do what? To make us children of God. What a Savior we have. And because of our Lord's obedience and life of humility, the Apostle Paul in verses 9 through 11 sets forth the exaltation of Christ, which is our last point, the exaltation of Christ. Verses uh, 9 through 11 it reads, therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. This is called the exaltation of Christ. And saints, is it not a fitting way for our Lord's life to end? a life that was lived in meekness and humility. Christ the God-man exalted because of his great work of redemption. Now, what do we mean when we say the exaltation of Christ? What are we saying? Well, we don't mean that Christ achieved an exalted state that he lacked prior to the incarnation. We aren't to think that Jesus Christ who is truly God, was exalted according to his divinity. 
For how can Jesus Christ, who is truly God, who is the exalted one, be more highly exalted than he already is? It's impossible, right? So when we speak of the exaltation of Christ, what we are saying is Jesus Christ is exalted with respect to his humanity. That the person of Christ, according to his humanity, is exalted. Thomas Watson says, not in respect of his Godhead is he exalted. For that cannot be exalted higher than it is. As in his humiliation, the Godhead was not lower. So in his exaltation, the Godhead is not higher, but Christ is exalted as mediator. His human nature is exalted. Because of the perfect work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the whole Christ, is exalted. And every knee shall bow to this one who is highly exalted. And he's been given a name that is above every name. A name, saints, that we are to, we are to uh, worship, that we are to highly exalt. A name that makes the demons shudder and that make evil men tremble. That this one, who's been given a name that is above every name, is the one that all people, heaven and on earth and under the earth, will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ who in life humbled himself to such lowliness, was raised from the dead and exalted to glory. Our Christ lived a life that exemplified what he said in Matthew 23, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Our Christ exemplified that in his life. And he was exalted over death and the grave and his resurrection. And in his ascension, Christ is exalted over heaven and on earth. The whole Christ now reigns ruler over all. He is the king. He is the sovereign. He sits enthroned in heaven while his enemies are made his footstool. The cross wasn't the end of our Lord's life, saints, but rather it was the means of Christ's exaltation, the glory that after the thorns, there will be a crown. And after the cross, there will be a, there will be a throne. Jesus Christ knew that after his state of humiliation, there will come a state of exaltation. Not just for himself, though, but for all those whom he lived for, for all those whom he died for, and all those whom he rose for. That it's not just Jesus Christ at the end, at the consummation of all things that will sit on the throne, but those who are united to him by faith alone, by the power of the Spirit, will be co-heirs with him in the eternal state. And saints, as we close this sermon, what we walk away with is this. We walk away with a clearer vision of the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we have removed all of our the wrong impurities and all of our wrong notions of Jesus Christ as the God-man. And now we can see him for who he is. True God of true God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Very man of very man. Yet one Christ who came in this world sinners to save. But we also, saints, are to have a more clear picture and view of the greatness of our sin. 
Yes, we have a clearer view of the greatness of our Savior. But saints, we also are to have a clearer view of the greatness of our sin. Our sin was so great, saints, that it took one to come from such a great height down to such a great depth that when we sinned in Adam, our sin was cosmic treason against the holy God. That one sin against an infinite God deserved an infinite punishment. It was of infinite value. And saints, or I should say, if you are an unbeliever this morning, or if you are a lukewarm Christian, or if you are unsure if you should bow your knee to Christ and reject all of those sinful inclinations and those things that draw you every single day and turn to Jesus Christ, my question for you is this, how will you save yourself? Even if you live the perfect life, even if you did all that was commanded, what will you accomplish? You are a finite creature that is an infinite debt to holy God. There is no way, there is no place for you, unbeliever, for you, lukewarm Christian, for you that is unsure of the faith to run and hide. Everyone will bow their knee to Christ. And God will do so in two ways. And everyone will do so in two ways. They will do so either by force or they would do so in gratitude and humility. But if you are a saint here, if you have bowed your knee to Christ, then this is your Christ. This is the one whom you have bowed your knee to. Saints, when we consider the incarnation, we have to walk away with this, that we so desperately needed one who was truly God and truly man. We so desperately needed one who would come in the likeness of human nature to represent the likeness of mankind. And we needed one who would add infinite value to that substitutionary death on the cross. You see, in the humanity of Christ, what does he do? He identifies himself with the offending party. And the deity of Christ, what does he do? He offers up a sacrifice that would appease the justice and wrath of God. It could not be any other way. We needed the God-man in order for us to be reconciled. In order for our greatest enemy, sin and death, to be conquered, not just Satan. In order for us to conquer sin and death, we needed Jesus Christ, who was God and man and saints. What Christ does for us is what we can never do for ourselves. We owed a debt that we could not pay. In a thousand upon thousand years, millions upon millions of years, we can never pay the debt that we owe to God. But the glorious thing about the incarnation is this, that God took on a debt that he did not owe. The eternal son took to himself 
our human nature, but with one difference, that this one was beyond the reach of the effects of the fall. That this one, unlike Adam, unlike Noah, unlike Abraham and Moses and David, all have failed, all have died. This one, Adam's curse could not touch. This one was beyond the reach of any taint of original sin. This one finally stood up to the curse of Adam and rose beyond the effects of the fall. Saints, everything we lost in Adam was won by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Every single thing that you lost in the garden was won by Jesus Christ at the cross. Adam disobeyed. Christ was faithful, was he not? Adam was tempted. Christ overcame. Adam lost for us paradise. Christ wins for us a paradise that can never be lost. In Adam, we are an entity with God. But praise be to God. In Christ, we have eternal peace with God. We are immutably, unchangeably justified before holy God. Saints, the incarnation of the eternal son matters. Why? Because of this. Without it, we have no hope. And I close with the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson. He says, he was poor that we might, that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in a manger that we may lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. Let's pray.